I want you to go to Luke chapter 24 in the scripture this morning. Um, we're going to go to the Lord's table at the ending of today's message. And I heard a man say this, and it so marked me, and it's such a way that I feel. I have, since I was about an 11-year-old, but especially when I was 12 years old, for whatever reason, the Lord gave me an insatiable hunger for this word. And I've spent all my life looking at this book, and, and then yet I walk to a sacred desk like today, and I always say, Lord, I don't know anything. Lord, I hope I know enough. Because I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, this book is inexhaustible. I may be glad that it is forever settled in heaven. And about the time I think I know something in it, I'm just blown away. I want to talk to you in a, in a way today that I want to put a background, especially in young people. Uh, we, you're going to need to know if the Lord tarries and he doesn't come for the church, you're going to need to know why you believe what you believe. And you're going to, be, you're going to have to stand for it because it's going to be tried and tested. How many of your parents know I'm telling you the truth? This old world is reeling and rocking with so many lies out of our society you cannot fathom. It's so filled with, with so many truths that are twisted, so many truths that have been tainted. I read again yesterday where Paul wrote that the God of this age has blinded the minds of men. And I want to say I've never seen such blindness. So I want to talk in simplicity this morning if I can. And... I want to talk about this, why we believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection. I want to keep it today toward the, res, uh, the, the crucifixion. Uh, once you read a few verses of Scripture with me, Luke 24, I, I just want to share with you this is a time where Christ has been crucified. He is resurrected. He is presenting himself to the disciples and... He's giving proof of his resurrection, but when he appeared, it shook them up. Now, these are men just like men and women here, young people, just like we are human beings. And suddenly, the three years they spent with this Christ, he's gone, and suddenly he reappears. Just, just understand, this would shake your world, wouldn't it? This wouldn't be an average day at work, right? And it wouldn't be your average day at all. And we believe this because I just want to say it's fact. And facts are stubborn things. Doesn't matter what we decide about it. Doesn't matter what we feel about it. Doesn't matter what we think about it. Facts are stubborn things. And let me just declare against every philosophical concept in so-called higher learned institutions today, there are absolute truths in this world. Humanity today wants to say there are no absolute truths because we don't want any responsibility toward an absolute truth. But regardless of what we think, we're going to be held accountable for absolute truths. Is it true absolutely yes or no I'm standing here? Is that absolutely true? Absolutely is. And you're going to have to deal with me. <laughs> I'm kidding you. Here he is. It's a different day. It's very different. All of a sudden, just put yourself in that concept. And he said, why are you troubled? Uh, 
Why are there doubts in your heart? And he said, look at my hands, look at my feet. And, and he said, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him fish and he, and he ate it. And he said, I'm not just spirit, I'm flesh and blood. He came back in a glorified body. And then let's go to verse 20, uh, 46 of 24. It says this. He said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Notice verse 48. And you are the witnesses of these things. You are the witnesses. I want to put our minds purposely and focus it and positively toward the cross and toward communion this morning. Many, many months ago, I had a conversation with a Muslim, of course, who believed in Islamic religion. Hadn't had too many occasions where it's just one-on-one, -on -one, but I've had several. But I'll never forget something that this individual said to me. He said these words. He made a statement. We do not believe that Jesus died. He said, we believe that there was a substitution. Christ only went so far and then someone took his place. And I've heard all those philosophical things. I've heard all this. But I thought about that. And today I want to make some observations so that you and I have something more than philosophical or, well, we wonder yes or no about all that. Years, several, three or four years ago, myself and Sue Sharp sang an old uh, Negro spiritual song. It was called, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? Good song. And I've been singing that this week. And I've been thinking about that. Sue, we ought to do that again. It's just, just a good song. But it dawned on me, I've sang it, I think, two years in a row with her at, as a duet. And I, I'd go, I, to be honest with you, I don't know. I haven't gone back through the words. But it, I questioned myself this week, who, who was the song to? To whom was the question in the song? Who was it given to is it to us? Were you there? Who's in, who's in mind with the question? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? I want to talk to you this morning about who was there. Who was there? How, why do we know? Why do we, why do we have this? And I will tell you this. There's a mixed and diverse crowd at Calvary. Friend and foe alike saw him die. These are eyewitnesses, and his death imposed, listen, its varying effect upon every one of those who glazed upon his agony. No, everybody had to be divided in that crowd. Here's why. The cross distinguishes man from man. You have to leave the cross making a decision. There's no other choice. For the cross is the acid test of character as well as the personal attitude toward truth. The good news is God gives us the right to choose. He gives us choice, free moral agency, we call it. And he'll let us choose which side of the cross. The world has its way of dividing men into classes. They divide men in rich and poor, learned and ignorant, fortunate and unfortunate. But God separates men by his son's cross. 
As every man comes to the side of the cross and must deal with it, he finds himself judged there, and he sees himself and God sees him. There is a decision required at Calvary, and there the whole human family is actually gathered on Golgotha's hill that day. Every race, every language, every creed, as we shall see, the cross reveals the best and the worst in human nature. So who saw him die? Who's there? If you're on the Bible app, you'll be like John and Dave. When I sent it to them, they said, we better pack a lunch. We're going to be here three hours because I have 14 points. Thank you for not shouting at me. Who's there? Simon was there. Simon was there. The Serene. Simon from Serene. Why did the centurion in charge of the crucifixion of Christ choose the man from North Africa to carry the cross of Christ? Why did he do that? Was it because he was large, tall, big, broad shoulders and stout and superman like pastor or what? That really hurt. That really hurt deeply. Why did he choose him? We don't know. But for whatever reason, he was chosen. But here's what I want you to notice. His life was absolutely changed forever. Tradition and history, historians say that after carrying the cross and after watching the Son of God, Christ, die on that cross, Simon the Serene became a very devout Christian. And when later on Mark writes his gospel of all the four gospel writers, he wrote the gospel and he called Simon's two sons by name. Their name was Alexander and Rufus. And they were well known in the New Testament church. Mark mentioned their names. It is told that after many, many years and until he died and many, many times, Simon, this muscular man from Cyrene, North Africa, would stand with pride and with determination and recount his history of the Via Della Rosa. If you don't know what that is, that's the trail from when the Pilots Hall all the way to Golgotha. It was a bloody trail. He would talk about how he carried Christ's cross down the Via Della Rosa and how we watched Jesus die on that cross. This man's life was changed forever. Simon was at the cross. He saw him die. There was a man by the name of Barabbas at the cross. He was there. He actually was the one appointed to die on that day as a criminal convicted and condemned. It should have been Barabbas who died on that cross and pay the price on the middle cross that day. But listen to me. Weak Pilate surrendered Jesus. It's not a new thing where small men are in big places. We see it all the time in leadership where little men have big positions, but eventually it crumbles as it always will. Arrogance and weakness, bends and bows. Ladies, if you have a strong-willed, godly husband that says, we're going to do the best we can here, you ought to thank God for him. Guys, that doesn't mean you're hard-headed and don't listen to anybody else. I know you want to shout both sides of me. Just be, stay quiet. 
Thank God for some strong men in leadership. This man surrendered Jesus as a substitute for a criminal, convicted criminal. I hope Barabbas found peace through the one who died on the cross. But he was there, and he saw him die. Thirdly, Nicodemus was there. Watch this, young people. Here's his history. He was a highly intellectual, highly educated man, deeply religious man, a Jewish teacher sought by many, many, many hundreds and thousands of people for an education. But he always slipped out and came to see Jesus by night, the Scripture says, and he asked many, many, many questions. He came secretly so that the Jews would not know that he was talking with Jesus. He was frightened. He thought he'd be put to death. But I want you to notice something about Nicodemus. At Golgotha's site, when they pulled Jesus' dead body off that cross, Nicodemus was no longer a secret disciple. He helped take the body down, brought spices and perfumes, and assisted in over four hours for the burial of the body of Jesus, and he wasn't ashamed to say so. He was there. He saw it. He prepared the body. The daughters of Jerusalem were there. These were professional weepers. It is indeed, ladies and gentlemen, a shocking thing to see a human body so mistreated like the Romans did on a, on a crucifixion. The bludgeon beating of human beings brings a sorrow that you, that you may not even know them. But ladies and gentlemen, it is so brutal. There is a breaking of hearts. But some of these criminals, even though they were criminals, had no one to weep for them. And they actually had what they call professional weepers who were sorry, the daughters of Jerusalem. And they had great emotion. They, limited, they lamented each victim who was slain on Golgotha. And they were assigned here to weep for Christ. And Jesus said to them, he said this, save your tears for you and your children because you're going to need it, need them in your coming sorrows. Ladies and gentlemen, when the world rejects Christ, there's coming sorrows. And I want to tell you, we, we should hear the message that the Old Testament prophets said, soon Babylon is coming. I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I believe we're in the last days. I want you to know that we had better be on the right side of the cross. How many, I wonder how many today are emotionally involved with suffering. Oh, they feel so sorry for the down and out. Oh, they feel so sorry for people mistreated. And rightly we should. And we even admire patience of some that are under affliction. Yet these bleeding hearts that get so, even about animals, and I love animals, and they get so tender and bleeding about the smallest thing, of the, yet they will not take that sorrow and place it upon the Son of God and give their hearts to Christ. But I want to tell you, it's a sad state of affairs when we feel more sorry for a dog and cat than we do murdering our unborn children. We are a sick generation. You know, they even now stoop to trying to get you to send money to save dogs and cats and play Amazing Grace and, and, and gospel songs. Don't think they're not trying to placate us. Well, aren't we just cheerful about it? <laughs> 
The daughters of Jerusalem were there. They were employed. And Jesus spoke to them. There were three Marys there, the three Marys. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers and sisters. This was the first mortal human being to see the face of Jesus, his mom. And she now weeps standing at Calvary in agony of soul, for this is her son. This is the one that Gabriel announced. This is the one that she formed in her womb. And now she stands far below his bludgeon bleeding body, and she weeps as she tenderly hears Jesus, that dying son, commit her care to John, one of the disciples. Someone's asked, did she recognize her own son? The question, the reason the question was asked some 700 years before Jesus was hanging on that cross, Isaiah saw him, and he prophesied and said, we could not even tell that his body was of a human being. The Marys were there. The mother was there. The other Mary was there, the sister. The Lord's aunt watched her nephew die. There was the third Mary there. Her name was Mary Magdalene. Where else would she be but at Calvary to see him? The one to whom she owed her entire existence, and she owed so much of her life. After all, had Jesus not saved her from something worse than death when he cast out seven demons out of her and restored her self-respect in her community? Mary Magdalene stood by the cross that the image of that marred face might be stamped upon her heart because he had taken her from death to life. And I just want to tell you my righteous indignation blood boils when our so-called now learned people decide if you're on ancient aliens and you decide that Mary Magdalene and Christ had an adulterous affair and children and yet he would condemn anyone else with an adulterous affair to a burning eternal lake of fire. I tell you it's nearly blasphemous. Men always wants to try to reduce Christ to human mentality. But this wasn't just a human being. He was God. Be careful what you believe in our human reasoning about the Savior. Let me tell you, the Scripture reported he was tempted in all manner, and yet he never one time ever sinned. Those Marys were there. The disciples were there. Here's Peter, and I identify with him. I hope you do too. One, you know, I have all these good intentions, but I fail. Sometimes I run past my thinking. Anybody here ever speak before you think? <laughs> Speaking for all the apostles, he literally said in his writing, we are the witnesses of these things. We all saw them physically. This isn't some philosophical. It's not some dream. We saw it. Yes, it's true Peter had failed. Yes, he had done damage and, and had to repair some things. But even if on the edge of the crowd, the scripture says that he wept bitterly, tears of penitence running down his face, but he vowed the reason, he said, I will go to death with you. And he felt so unworthy. 
to die in the same manner of Christ because he had denied him. When it came time for him to be crucified and for him to die, he begged his executioners to crucify him upside down. You better believe the cross changed Peter. He was there. Tell Peter he didn't die. Yet in his writing, he said these words, We have been redeemed. By the precious blood of Christ. Peter knew it. The centurion was there. I love this one. This learned, stiff-jawed centurion who had been trained, an officer in the Roman Empire now commanding a hundred soldiers. You think this guy's a pushover? He's the one assigned to the details in every detail to carry out the grim task of crucifying all of Roman's criminal victims. He had crucified untold numbers of criminals, those who were against the Roman Empire. Time after time after time, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, this centurion soldier had been in charge, yet there was something totally different about the man dying on the middle cross. Because right in the midst of all the crowd on Golthus Hill at Calvary's taking of the Son of God, this man in his Roman garb, this man with his stiff jaw, this man with a calloused heart would turn and say, absolutely, he cried out loudly. He knew it was a miscarriage of justice. He rocked the countryside with his voice as the earthquake rocked the countryside. He cried out unashamedly, truly, this was the Son of God. I I see that intensity on that hill. The soldiers... Roman soldiers were there. This rough, pagan, calloused soldiers. They were accustomed to driving nails through hands. Driving steel through feet. Piercing sides so that the blood and the water would be drained from every Roman criminal, and they had no sympathy for the anguish and the suffering that they executed. These men got to the point after so many years that they could kill without even turning an eye. You don't believe it. I will tell you it's true because the Scripture says they sat down to watch Jesus die and then turned around while he was dying, gambling his clothes to see who would take it while he's dying on the ground, the clothes they had stripped him of. There's no conscience here. They were there. What a scene. What a scene that is. While the highest love was on the cross praying, At its foot, the deepest hatred was indifferent. The soldiers were there. They saw it. They knew it. There were also two thieves there. 
All three of these men on the cross are dying. Yet there's a major difference. The two thieves were dying for their own crimes. But Jesus was dying for the crimes of others. And I want you to notice something. The last kind word that Jesus spoke was to a thief. Jesus loved humanity so much that when the thief finally said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And here's the Son of God dying for your sins and mine and that thief's sins. And he said, I will not have a relationship with you that takes time and years and years and all that in the sense of forgiveness of sin. He said, no, sir, you've repented. You know who I am. This day you will be with me in paradise. And when the soul and the spirit was released from the body of the Son of God and went to the presence of God, right there with it as a twin, with it was the soul and the spirit of a thief. Because I want to tell you something. One drop of the blood of Christ can make you whole and you're presented spotless before the throne this day with me in paradise when the gates opened for the son of God there was a thief beside him they were there that thief was there ladies and gentlemen the cross divides one One thief went to paradise. The other thief went to perdition. Someone said these words. I'm going to quote them. I want you to hear them. Quote, One was saved that none might despair, but one was lost so that none might not presume. Those thieves were there. Here's somebody else that was there. The religious leaders were there. Religious leaders. The priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, all these who had all the pretty coverings outside. Jesus said, you are whited sepulchers. You look and you play the part and you talk it and all that, but inside you are vile. All the pretense about religion All the pretense about, oh, I'm saved, oh, I'm a Christian, oh, I believe, oh, all that, all that, that's all pretense. That's scribes, elders, the seers, the Pharisees. And the scripture says they derided him. That word in the Greek means a curled lip. It means they literally physically at Golgotha curled their lip and sneered the Son of God. With hatred in their eyes, they saw him die. Here's what they wanted. Watch this today, ladies and gentlemen. Young people, hear me. They wanted religion without a redeemer. They wanted a Messiah without a cross. They wanted a life without any sacrifice at all. They wanted all the benefits and none of the responsibilities. The Pharisees were there. The religious leaders were there. Let me just say as a whole, not only that, number 11, the universe was there. How could he, the Son of God, on a cross speak and their very existence become born? Here's what I'm saying. Before the foundations of the earth, God said, I formed every one of you. Look at me, teenagers. You're 12, 13, 16, 18 years old. God formed you ancient, ancient millions of years ago before this earth ever came into being. 
He had a soul and a spirit. And when your mom and dad came together, he put it in that body because he has something he wants you to do. Don't you let certain Satan pervert what God wants to do with your life. Come on, parents, say amen. You're not a mistake. You're not here by accident. We all have pain. We all have, Satan tries to destroy us all through all those kind of things. But this is the truth. It's so important. The universe was there. This one could stand, you hear me say all the time, he could stand in nothing and speak into nothing and even my soul and spirit, yours, all of us would come into existence. The stars, the moon, the sky, the grass, the trees, the animals, it could be come into existence, be born. How could his handiwork be so gloriously displayed and remain silent and still at his death? How could the universe just let it go? And it didn't didn't. Nature hurried to turn the midday into nighttime to hide the shame heaped upon our creator. The scripture said the earth quaked and the sun darkened and the clouds came. Nature moved quickly to hide the nakedness with a garment of blackness for the son of God. That was a shaking time. Thunder rolled and it made noise and everybody on that hill was filled with fear and it was God saying this is only happening because I'm purchasing your eternity. Nature moved, but listen, something else moved. What about over in the temple? What about instead of just on Calvary's hill, what about over in the temple in that veil? What about that veil? History says it's some 18 inches thick, made of leather. Not even, not even teams of horses and mules could tear it apart. And yet when this son died, God took his finger from heaven and the scripture says that it was torn from the top to the bottom, which means men did not tear it. God tore it. And what he was saying was this, you're in your sin and heretofore you've had to come with brute beasts and their blood and Jewish Shoah for 4,000 years soaked up in here representing my lamb but this is him and I divide this now and you don't have to go through a priest you don't have to sacrifice a lamb you come straight to me and you and I will deal with your eternity what about over at the graveyard three days later <laughs> What about, what about over there? Nature could not keep silent nor still when they crucified the Lord and when the resurrection power hit planet earth. It had to respond. And I'm going to just put parenthetically in here, what about all the angels that all those at the Golgotha and all those at Jerusalem are all across that area? What about the 10,000s of 10,000s of 10,000 angels sitting out there? And what about Gabriel? What about Michael the archangel? Don't you know he's standing watching? And don't you know, did, did, wouldn't you, can't you just hear him as one guy writing a novel here years ago pictured it so well? He's saying to the father, Father, this is your son. This is, this is our master. Please command me to destroy this planet and set him off of that cross. Just give me an order. I'll tear this place apart. <laughs> 10,000 angels could destroy all creation. Super angelic beings. 
can't you hear the cry of an angel saying, just give me a command? <laughs> but that brings me to this point, number what, 12? God was there. God was there. While the fourth cry, there were seven statements from Christ on the cross. I hope you know that, the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. The fourth one, everybody thinks that God wasn't there because of the fourth cry. They say God was not there to see his son die. Actually, if you read it, you'll see that God actually was there and he turned his back, and that's why it became black. Part of the nature that I just described. But they take that from this when Jesus looked up and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But let me just say this, God was there. He is yet not only omnipotent, all-powerful. He is not only the omniscient one who knows it all. He is also the omnipresent one. God witnessed Calvary. He was there. But while God as God could not look upon the sin of the world, his son was bearing yours and mine. Yet in that darkness, God was near. I want to tell you, the God that didn't forsake his son won't forsake you either. There may be some pain in the cross. There may be some tough chapters to go through, but God will never forsake you. Jesus knew the Father was there. He knew he hadn't left him alone. This is what I'm going to tell you now is my, my concept. It is my opinion. It is where I think. You can read this. You study it yourself. Get, get, get into the language. Do what you want. But here, this is me. I want you to know this is my thought. This isn't, you can take it as doctrine, but do it on your own. This is what I believe. I believe Jesus was both human and God in the same package. But as, this is me, as a human as a human being, I think Jesus said out of his pain and out of what felt like he was lonely and out of everything he was experiencing physically for you and me, a crown of thorns beaten in blood until he could hardly breathe, iron driven in his body, his blood plucked out, or his beard plucked out of his face. When he was thirsty, they gave him vinegar hanging there and he's dying and he says, my God, my God, as a human, why have you forsaken me? But I believe the deity of God said also, these were his words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. God was there. He watched it. God, the, father, the Son, committed himself to God the Father. Thirteen, let me tell you this quickly, the Holy Spirit was there. When Peter declared that the apostles were there, he went on to say, when Peter wrote his gospel or his writing, he said, not only were the apostles, the disciples there, he said, so was the Holy Spirit. And watch this. I want you to note this. Don't forget this because we use this word a lot, but it was not some apostle. It wasn't a disciple. It wasn't pastor. It wasn't anybody else. Jesus, before he died, named the Holy Spirit the Comforter. He said, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send the Comforter. The Holy Spirit was there. He witnesses it. There cannot be untruth in the Spirit of our God. Lastly, you were there. We were there. We were there. Were you there when they 
crucified our Lord. Yes, we were. In a representative sense, we were there. For he was dying for your sins and my sins. The sins of all the ages. Young people, mom and dad, Jesus Christ had us in mind when he climbed those bloody washed slopes of Golgotha. Yes, I wish I had time to tell you so much about it, but when he went to when he went to his favorite home, a fellowship in Bethany, and Mary and Martha, one was cooking the other, she took that anointing oil and put it on him, poured it on his feet and dried her his feet with her hair. All the way from that house in Bethany, all the way to Pilate's Hall, and from Pilate's Hall all the way up to Golgotha's Hill, the aroma of that anointing that Mary had put on his feet was noticed by everyone. I want to tell you something. In the worst of circumstances, there's always an anointing of the Father that if you will look for it, let me tell you, you can always find the presence of God and He will come as a sweet-smelling savor to your spirit. Anybody here ever had that happen? I have. He had us in mind. Watch this. In His nailed hands, in His pierced feet, in his thorned brow, in his beaten back, in his pierced side, we can read the guarantee of eternal salvation. There is none, no temptation. There is no sacrifice but what he has not made. It was all for you and all for me. Ladies and gentlemen, we were there at Calvary also. How many of you are glad that he included not only those present that day and those previous to that day, but all of us who would be future. And maybe we're glad. That's the only way we have forgiveness. So I want to say this and I'll be through. John Maysfield wrote an essay depicting these events, wrote an essay of it. And he pictured a conversation in his essay between Pilate's wife and the centurion who took care of the details of the crucifixion of Christ. And in his essay, he put them together and Pilate's wife asked the centurion, do you think that he is dead? And the centurion said, no lady, I don't. And she said, then where is he? Where is he? And the centurion said this, where is he? He is let loose in the world where neither Roman nor Jew can stop his truth. I want to tell you something. Without this truth, without this truth, this world has no standing at all. It is all going to be destroyed because of evil. The wicked Hollywood crowd today, and the wicked politicians today, everybody that stands themselves up against it as despots and dictators. Men think they're powerful. The very beat of every one of them's heart is because God allows their heart to beat. And I said this week, I, I was in counseling, and I just 
How many of you know there is such thing as a righteous anger? I am angry at what Satan's doing to this world and to the lives of people. And I made the statement again to, a, to an individual. I said to them, you better be glad that I'm not God because I wouldn't handle it nearly as well. Were you there? You were. Who was there? All these. And ladies and gentlemen, Calvary makes you make a decision.